Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM, that's frequency, and my name is Andy, I am with you for the next hour, of course, as always, acknowledging that we're broadcasting on Aboriginal land here, Jagger and Turrbal people in Brisbane and other nations elsewhere, and today I'm very excited to tell you what's on the show, we are going to be exploring the past and present of the bunyanut, one of the very best uh, bush tucker native foods in Australia, and it is bunyanut season at the moment. They are in abundance. These giant spiky cones are... that fall from giant spiky trees and you cut them open and you get out these fleshy nuts, starchy kind of nuts. So it tastes a bit like a chestnut, um, which we don't eat much in Australia, chestnuts. So um, it's very exciting. Uh, There's been plenty of them around. I've been eating them and I know that they play a very significant part in the Aboriginal culture and traditions of this part of the world, southeast Queensland. And so I thought, let's investigate this and learn a bit about the significance of this nut that we are eating. And so uh, I spoke with BJ Murphy, who's a Ginniborough man. I spoke with uh, Diane uh, Jucky-Widjung, who is a Kabi elder. And um, I also spoke with Ray Kirkhove, who's a historian, who's written a lot about the bunya gatherings, these massive events that used to take place when you had a bumper crop of bunya nuts. And it's really interesting to learn about all of that. Uh, So stick around. Um, Hopefully by the end, you'll be converted and you'll be heading out to try to find some bunya nuts um, yourself. Uh, And we do get a few cooking tips as well. And so I've actually, I've got quite a lot that we're going to pack in, so I'm going to get straight into it. Um, We might start off with BJ um, to hear a bit about Bunny Nuts from him. Could you start by introducing yourself? Yes, uh, my name's BJ Murphy. I'm a Ginnabara elder. I live up here on Ginnabara country at Mullaney in the Sunshine Coast hinterland. Now, today on the Paradigm Shift, we are talking about uh, bunyi nuts, bunya nuts, and their Ginnaburra country is definitely 
um, Banya country. And in fact, I saw on Facebook a picture of you with definitely the biggest haul of Banya nuts that I've seen this season. Um, can you tell us about uh, what do Banya nuts mean for you? Oh, for, for me, you know, they're something that our people have walked hundreds and hundreds of miles for back in the day for our uh, bunny nut gatherings and they're they're just really um you know even though we eat them they're just so sacred to me like i just see them as such a symbolic significance for our people Mm. and um that it is an incredible haul that you got there and it does seem that you've been giving them away to people coming and getting them you know is there a kind of sacredness to that idea of sharing them harvesting them eating them yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, normally back in the day, I believe 1902 was the last documented Bunya gathering. Since then, um, Arnie Beverly Hand was holding the uh, Bunya Dreaming Festival to keep it going. But um, due to COVID, sadly, you know, that we haven't been able to do it. But um, we're, we're working on bringing it back up here to uh, Baroon Pocket. And uh, we put it out because of COVID. I thought, you know, it's a bump crop. They're just in abundance at the moment and it'd be really sad to see them go to waste and um i put a post out on facebook asking if anybody had you know an excessive amount that they couldn't eat or or whether they didn't eat them at all and you know because there's lots of farms and stuff up here that still have uh bunya trees on their property and um we've got a few calls and people have been dropping them off um and one lady uh one couple in particular yeah, they, they said, look, we've got 40 cones. Is that, is that too many? And I said, look, there's no such thing as too many bunny cones. <laughs> and um, then she rang me back an hour later and she said, look, um, I'm glad you said there's no such thing as too many because we've got 270 cones here. <laughs> and um, that's, that's the image and the little video we put out to let people know that we had, you know, this many and that we really wanted to share them. And um, they brought them in in a little tip truck and um, tipped them out here on our little dance dance circle at um Manambajar and um yeah we've we've just been um doing what we can you know because because well, we're not funded or anything it's just off our own backs and working with community to you know instead of us meeting a gathering due to covid getting these bunny nuts out to communities and, and out to mob to share and and celebrate mm-hmm. you know they're just so culturally significant to us and we look forward to them all year round yeah, I'm interested. I've been eating a lot of them this year as well. There seems to be a lot around and um, there's a, a lot of fun in, you know, pulling apart the cones and things like that. And it's really, uh, you can feel being part of a tradition of this area as well when you do this that's been done for so long. But I'm wondering, do you think that bunny nuts could be part of a kind of Australian food growing a bigger part of our diet and maybe a commercially growing crop or something like that um well yes and no um (laughs) uh absolutely they could be commercially grown and um you know uh very much a staple food source you know we 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 shuck them and you know whether they're in the fire roasted or um, you know, cooked in the oven. I prefer my mine boiled and uh, just a bit of salt on them. Um, and then I had a lady come in and said she steamed them. And and you know, it's 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 through that process I think that's really important in in sitting down with with mob 
and community and, and the yarns that come about whilst you're, you know, I guess, for the better use of the term, processing the bunion nuts, you know, shucking them and, and pulling the nuts out of the cones themselves. Um, I think that's very important, that process, because that's when you're sharing and you're open and, and you know, you, you're learning stuff from whoever's sitting with you and, and vice versa. Um, I think... You know, because we can get caught up in this, uh, I guess, extractive society, my heart isn't in it for them to be, I guess, farmed for for the nuts. I think it's better to keep them as that traditional way of practice. Um, mm. Though we are working with Sunshine Coast University to, to see, you know, what levels of protein and what levels of carbohydrates are in them. You know, you, you see them online for sale and... Um, you know, I, for for us personally, we could never bring ourselves to sell the, the cones. It's it just it's just wrong way business. We couldn't do it that way. So, um, but in saying that, you know, there are there are some people that feel I can only talk for myself and my wife uh, how we feel. But um, yeah, there are some people that you know I guess could farm it and 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 make it a staple food source in society. Mm. Yeah, well, a big part of that, the gathering tradition was that they were shared around, you know, between all the different nations that came together, hey? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the uh, the general saying is roughly, you know, up to 500 kilometres, though I think it was a bit further. Um, people travelled to um, Baroon Pocket United to sit down and, and celebrate those ceremonies and, um, you know, marriages and squirrels and trade and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, that was all because because of and around the, the bunny nuts. Mm. Um, I'll tell you one thing that I am amazed about, um, because I love eating them and I love harvesting them, but um, climbing the trees or even getting the cones barefoot like those old Aboriginal people would have been, is, they're pretty <laughs> spiky, hey? What do you think of it? They must have been pretty tough when they really loved those nuts, hey? Yeah. Uh, look, something that, you know isn't done anymore that you know we're working on getting back is is our traditional fire farming you know and 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 burning the land and and healing this country because it is really sick but um yeah most of the time when i walk the bush i'm not gonna lie i'm barefoot and um i could i couldn't count how many times i've been spiked by them leaves um but uh, another thing we also used to do in um in in gathering those those cones was actually um, we'd trim the lower branches of the of the bunny tree so that all the sap goes up the top and you get, you know, a nice, big, beautiful sap-filled, you know, bunny cone. They're, they're much nicer. So um, a lot of the trees now you see around, they've still got all these lower branches and stuff. So, um, you know, down here on the Stanley River, we'd use lawyer cane and we'd loop it around the tree and, and down around our foot and we'd, we'd use those old branches where they've been cut off. They're like little steps, you know, and you'd book the top loop around and pull yourself up and climb up all the way up the top. Mm. Now, there is an exhibition coming up um, up there at Mullaney um, based on the Bonnier Nuts. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, on the 5th of February, I'm pretty sure the date is, um, we're having a Bonnier Living Culture exhibition you know um i think it's just really important to bring the awareness about the community you know in regards to the the just the significance of the bunya trees and you know how old some of them are though a lot of the monjinaburra country have been logged there's only a few that are 
those original big grandmother trees that we call grandmother, you know, that helped build the forest. And, and the, the exhibition's just about how alive it still is. You know, it's not forgotten, it's not gone, it's still very much alive and, you know, having these gatherings and, and sitting down with mob and, and shucking the cones and, and eating them together, yeah, it's still very much a part of our living culture and, you know, we, we try to participate in it every day up here. All right. Thanks very much, BJ, um, and hope you're enjoying the abundant harvest of bunny nuts you've got there. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Even for those who don't have any, please do come in and grab some and, yeah, take them home and, and sit down and share them with your family and, and enjoy a good yarn over them. Yeah, cheers, PJ. Thanks, mate. We are talking bunion nuts, the spiky yet ultimately delicious bush tucker that uh, is abundant at the moment. Of course, every three years, according to the tradition, there's a bumper crop, and that's when the big bunny gatherings would take place. It does seem like this year may be a bumper crop. There's plenty of them around. Um, I was speaking with BJ Murphy. He's a Ginnaburra man. Um, he's been getting into the bunny nuts as well. And I'm going to chat now with uh, Diane Jackie Widjung. She's a carby elder. I... This time last year, actually, I was eating bunny nuts with her up at the um, Jaki Kundu um, process camp um, up at Gympie. So it's been moved on now, but Diane's still going there, fighting the good fight, and I thought I'd chat with her about bunny nuts. I'm Diane to Jackie Wichung. I'm the keeper of records for the sovereign native tribes of the Kabi First Nations. Now, uh, Kabi people are um, in the Sunshine Coast area of Queensland, as we call it now, and this is one of the, the home territories of the Bunyanut, which we're talking about today on 4 Z. Um, and I actually ate Bunyanuts with you a year ago up at uh, the Jackie Kundu camp. You had a, a number of them there and you are cooking them. What's the significance for Bunyanuts for Kabi people? Well, this is Bunya country. Bunya is actually in Kabi language. It's Bunya or Bunya. Um, and the Bunya Bunyas grow on Kabi country. And this is where all the modern Bunya trees emanated from, this area. Rangimpi, um, the Black Hole Ranges, and up further north, there's actually a large stand of bunya trees at Warabinda and the tribes up there regard themselves as Kabi Kabi speaking tribes. So this whole area is bunya country, Kabi country, Waka country um, and the surrounding tribes as well. But most of the bunya gatherings were held on Kabi and Waka Waka country. Mm. And... You were harvesting quite a lot of them last year and it was something that when guests came to the camp that you were we were breaking open the nuts together and eating them. Do you feel like there's a that ritual of harvesting and eating the nuts is still something that's sort of continuing importance for Kabi? Oh, of course, because um, the law meetings were heard at the time of the bunya harvest because bunya was one of the main foods around here and... Unfortunately, since colonisation, a lot of the bunya trees have been cut down. And sharing the bunya was a good good way of um, getting people together because the law meetings were really important, but 
so many people used to come to this area for bunya gatherings. They needed a lot of food, so the time of the bunya was a good time to have very large gatherings, and people came here from all over the continent and the island, followed their songline to gather at the time of the bunya harvest. Um, so that's something that's been around since the beginning of time, and it's not something that will disappear as long as Kabi or Waka Waka or any of the other Bunya tribes are around. Mm. But unfortunately, there's less and less trees. In 1842, there was a proclamation made on behalf of Queen Victoria that um, this land was not to be settled and the Bunya trees on other trees were not to be cut down. It noted that Bunya was important um, and it sustained people. But unfortunately... Since that proclamation was made in 1842, successive governments have ignored it and people have been cutting down the trees. So there are less and less viable bunya trees. And a case in point was when the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads removed Kabi people from the sacred site of Tajaki Kundu and knocked down well over 50 mature bunya trees. Mm. Do you think that um, we could be doing more with them? Like, you know, Bruce Pascoe and people have talked about farming native foods. Do you think that Mm -hmm. that we could, like, farm bunya nuts and sell them, export them overseas? Well, I think the the Australian government acknowledges that all tribal people should be self-determining. Why not allow tribal people to create some sort of industry because uh, bunya nuts were owned, the trees were owned by specific families and still are. The areas that they grew in were owned by tribal people and that's all been taken away um, because in effect government doesn't allow tribal people to harvest nuts anymore. A lot of places the trees have been cut down where trees still remain um, Anyone can go in and take the nuts and do with them what they like. In fact, a lot of people harvest them and sell them, so there's less and less for the tribes every year. Um, so it's disappointing. And Kabi people have been actively planting more bunya trees. We, we um, plant the nuts on Kabi country. Whitbooker has been cultivating bunya trees um, quite extensively for a while and handing them out um, to other tribal peoples to grow. And I really think that um, this should be encouraged um, because bunya trees do provide uh, a really nutritious resource. And I think that um, if tribal people were allowed to set up that industry on their own without government interference, it would employ a lot of people and as well, it's, um, it would be making tribal culture stronger. Mm. Now, uh, there's different ways that you can uh, cook and prepare the nuts. What's your preferred method of uh, cooking the bunya nuts? Oh, well, yeah, everyone has different methods. Um, I have to say that um, boiled with lots of salt is my favourite. I used to like them raw until uh, Whit Booker cooked them up for all of us and the way he cooks them, they're just wonderful. Um, and I think that's 
the favourite way for most people. But people do stir-fry them and make soup and curries and pestos and all sorts of other things. Mm. So it's, uh, you know, personal preference, I guess. Okay, thanks, Diane. Thank you. You're welcome. Bonne whooping. That is Diane to Jackie Woodjung there um, talking about money nuts. I did think I'd just put in. So last year, late last year, uh, they did get evicted from the Jackie Kundu camp by police, and um, we did report that on the paradigm shift. If you're listening, um, it's been quite upsetting for them having a lot of that uh, site there at Jackie Kundu cleared, um, but. They are in court fighting that, and so they'll be pleading not guilty to the charges there of, um, you know, refusing to leave their own land, and that's ongoing in court. You're on the paradigm shift. I did read, I was reading about the history of bunya gatherings, and I did read that uh, a lot of them, they would make a kind of bread out of the bunya nuts. Um, you'd mash it, and then you'd cook it on the fire, and you would uh, mix in uh, porcupine meat, as they call it, echidna meat, um, into the bunya bread um, to eat it, which is just another way of eating this great bush tucker, lots of different ways, and uh, Aboriginal people had ways of preserving it and fermenting it, sprouting all kinds of things. Um, now, a lot of that history I learnt from a paper written by Ray Kirkhove about bunny gatherings in southeast Queensland. And so I thought, who better to get on the show than Ray um, to have a chat about the bunny gatherings? Could you start off by introducing yourself? Yes, um, I'm Dr. Ray Kirkhove. I'm a professional historian. I've um, worked with uh, Indigenous sort of projects for probably. 30 odd years um, and um, I've over the years been on and off quite involved with uh, the Bunya Festival uh, most recently with Macquarie University there's a project that they're having at the moment uh, which is involving um, Indigenous and uh, non-Indigenous uh, doctoral students And are you a fan of eating the Bunya nut? <laughs> when I can get it um, when I lived up the coast, that was a bit easier. They used to sort of sometimes be in the grocery shops. Well, they are very abundant at the moment. And um, in your context as a historian, you have uh, studied the bunny gatherings, which is one of the very interesting things about this nut. Um, what started your interest in that? Uh, yes. Well, um, at the time I was living up the coast and... Uh, it's one of the features of that of uh, what's now the Sunshine Coast was the was the uh, hinterland. Um, I'll give you a bit of a story. When I was a, a teenager, I was I was helping with these uh, church camps, and um, and uh, some of the participants, some of the the teachers, took us up the range, and there I it was a like a really misty day. And there were these enormous cannonball-shaped cones lying about, and they said, "Well, these these things you can eat." And they didn't even know how to eat them, so they tried hacking at them with with axes and things. It was most bizarre. And then, and that fascinated me. I thought, "What the heck are these? They're like dinosaur heads, you know." And uh, then I learned uh, about them, and 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 subsequent to that, I uh, I was part of a thing called Renewing the Dreaming, which was led by Ted Gabu Thomas. He was an Aboriginal elder from South Coast. Um, of um, New South Wales, and he had his his uh, 
camps uh, which were about sort of uh, enculturating white people into indigenous ways and he had them actually up at the Bunya Mountains. So from then I was sold and I became quite in, in, involved with all that. So there is a paper that you've written that is available online um, that compiles some of the primary source material talking about the Aboriginal Bunya gatherings from when they are still happening, both in the Bunya Mountains and also on the Sunshine Coast hinterland. What inspired this paper? Yes, that was actually a, a fundraiser, and that's sort of a bit of an indication of my involvement over the years. Um, uh, there's a, a, a cubby elder, um, uh, her name's Beverly Hand, and uh, for quite a few years now, it must be over a decade now, she's been running... A- um, her own uh, Bunya Festival. Uh, originally she had a broom pocket at the dam there and then moved it to a few other spots. Um, it might actually be coming back there by now, I don't know. It, it, it's on shortly. Uh, yeah, and so I did that as a, as a fundraiser for their, their efforts. They, they, um, uh, you know, they, they, they were trying to keep it going um, and, and it was actually quite a big thing at the time. Okay, so let's talk about the Bunya gatherings and why this is an important bit of history. And uh, what many people would know is that these gatherings, a lot of different nations came together as a bit of a meeting and also a bit of a pilgrimage. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, And it's interesting because uh, the more Indigenous groups I talk to and also the more research I do, the more I find it's even further and further afield than I, than I thought. You know, we, we used to think, oh, sort of like, well, say, southeast Queensland and a bit of, bit of the southwest, uh, you know, although even in, since the, the 70s there's, there's been some um, uh, doctoral work done on this that, that, that shows it was also all the way down to, um, like, Dubbo. But then um, I recently uh, dug up a, an account of uh, people coming all the way from Birdsville, you know. Uh, this is in, you know, oh, about the 1870s, you know, and walking all the way from there, but but also like from what we'd now call like Tambo, you know, the Central Highlands, um, Bundaberg, all the way down to say Coffs Harbour. So it, it's a huge chunk of Australia, and it's actually it may have been the biggest Indigenous uh, festival or gathering that, that Australia ever saw. There, there's some numbers. Some people say there were something seven thousand. There's Archibald Nesson even talks about twenty thousand. Enormous amount of people from an enormous amount of groups you know, made that, and, and um, it would take them months to get there even. And your research says that there was a lot of priority given to making it to the bunny gathering. Even Aboriginal people who had jobs, say on cattle stations, would uh, go walk about, you know, say, I've got to go to the bunny gathering. Yes, yes, yeah. Because it was sort of everything rolled up into one. If you can imagine something that was like. Um, uh, Parliament, um, the the National of Stedford, um, the Olympics, uh, uh, the biggest trade fair you can imagine. Imagine all those things happening all at once in in one spot. You could see how tremendously important it was. People would be back in their homeland. They would be preparing for this. They they uh, develop songs and dances that they wanted to show off once they got there. They'd be making crafts and things that they would be uh, you know, selling, or rather trading up when they got there. Uh, some of those marriages were arranged. Um, often all the sort of sorting out of political differences and so on was done because the idea was you'd come there and it was like an armistice. Everyone was, there was, you know, uh, it was peace. And, and then the end of it was also peace. They'd sort everything out and then everyone would kind of leave with everything sorted. So... Uh, it's, it's, it's a great thing to, to have that goal, I think. And it, it would have been sort of like Christmas and 
a lot of our festivals all roll together. And uh, I've got an account um, where there were women coming from, that they'd walked vast distance from the west and, and they could then see the, the Bunya Mountains on the horizon. And they were so ecstatic, they would, they would just start dancing and, and they even um, pulled these little uh, white kids who were hiding under a, in a tent, hiding, you know, fearing for their lives. And they, they, they grabbed them and brought them out and danced around with them and then, and then gave them all uh, bunya nuts. So people would, would have been ecstatic whenever they turned up to these places. It would have been quite something to experience, I think. And the way that they gathered is really interesting too. I mean, there would have been some kind of oral messengers sent out, but also a system of smoke signals to tell people that the festival was coming up. Yeah, I, I've, um, I recently did a paper on about the whole uh, complexity of Aboriginal communications. I had a very sophisticated network, but it was, it was especially used for things like these, for these, these gatherings. There would be sort of, um, there were set spots from which you signalled. And you can actually send a signal hundreds of kilometres if you've got the right spots and if, and if people are knowing to watch for a signal coming from that spot. Uh, and this is how the whole thing was coordinated. They said that people would turn up basically at the same time uh, coming from these, these vast distances. And you can imagine, like, people are just walking and walking. They wouldn't... Um, often they, they wouldn't eat much. They would even someone sleep in the open because they were just so eager to go there. It was, it was a whole, like I said, a pilgrimage. It was a whole thing about... Um, um, just making the journey, I think, you know, and and then it wasn't just the Bunya Mountains of the Blackwell Ranges, it was the whole area around there too. There were a lot of Bunya groves all through there and, and they would, although there were key areas there, they they would move it depending on where the crop was better or, you know, or where they could fit people. So if you can imagine thousands of people spread out over that whole area, you can kind of see how it may have worked. Okay, so let's talk about what would happen at the bunny gathering. Uh, it would start off with a kind of welcoming ceremony. Yes, yeah, we, we've got some accounts from in Petrie where uh, the, there'd be someone would would, would uh, go up up a tree and 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 bring down the first cone. Um, it would have to be the the traditional owners of that area, but um, they had basically the, the, there was also a song they sang which actually welcomed everyone in. Um, uh, you know, and basically said you were friends and so on, you know. And and that was one of the, the key things, was basically like a picnic, if you can imagine, because there's these trees, if, you've, if you see them, if you can imagine there being many, many more of them and huge forests everywhere of them, um, and they each have something like 60 cones and each cone has, you know, can have like 100 nuts, so it's a lot of food. So there was a lot of feasting and then all this other stuff worked into that, like, um, you know, tournaments and trade and storytelling at night and, um, you know, they'd visit each other. Um, you know, there were, there were so many activities. We've got a lot of descriptions of different sports and things that were done, like a lot of competitive sports. So it would have been a bit, a bit of everything. There's reports of Aboriginal people gorging themselves on bunion nuts so much that they couldn't walk. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we don't know how accurate that is, but it, it does seem like uh, because they were basically uh, spending most of the time walking, getting there, they, they'd often be quite thin by the time they got there. And then because it was so much uh, feasting and, and that, it wasn't just nuts. There were other things around, like um, uh, that's the, the peak se- season for uh, shrub turkey eggs, so, so any scrub turkeys... Uh, eggs would be eaten along with that and uh, whatever other game, you know. But um, it was mainly um, uh, the nuts. And, yeah, and they got quite um, 
quite sleek and, and <laughs> from, from all, all, all that. They also, and this is something too I've just been working on because I'm doing uh, lately a lot of work about storage. Um, I'm finding a lot of accounts that large quantities of nuts were actually uh, buried in uh, by creeks and we found there were different ways they'd they use special mud to preserve these they put them in these huge dillies huge sort of like baskets if you like uh and that was like a winter food throughout a very large area i i've been surprised how many accounts i found of this so it seems that this was done at springs and at creeks and i think some of these sprouted and that's why they turn up at, at where there were camps but this is some something we're looking at too is like well how much were bunya trees deliberately dispersed how much were they actually um um did they spread with people you know going back from their from to their homeland sort of thing I imagine a lot of the time it would have been quite a lot of work for Aboriginal people to get their food, either catching game or or milling grass seeds. And then you have uh, bunny nuts, which, you know, there's so many of them and they're high carbohydrates, which a lot of their food wouldn't have been. You can see why it made sense to use this as an opportunity to get everybody together. Yes, yeah, there was such a surplus. Um there's still parts of, if you go to the Bunya Mountains, there's still areas where you can look out and, you, and you're looking at like whole valleys of, the, of these trees. Now, imagine that this was also the case sort of around what's now Kilcoy and uh, Jimna and out to, um, oh, you know, look, there's, there's barely any left on the, on the Blackwell Ranges and there used to be tons there. So if you imagine all those areas having huge stands of this, it would have been a tremendous amount of food. And it's always good to uh, discuss your differences on a full stomach. And so this was a part of the bunny gathering as well, wasn't it? This uh, kind of resolving of disputes between different tribes. Mm, yeah, we have a number of accounts of... Uh, this was also like where some of the very interesting... Uh, I do a lot of stuff about frontier wars and it seems like a lot of group decisions were made. There was there would so often there'd be discussions then and then further discussions that went on and on there'd be like uh, rings that they had they're called tours uh, where they invite different um, main elders you know from different groups representing different groups and then there might be a subsequent meeting and so on and so on there was always a lot of discussion but then they they worked out sort of like what to do about the the problem of the invasion basically the fact that the settlers were coming here so there's there's quite a bit we have on that and that that a lot of the actions were sort of decided up there um you can imagine because if you've got people coming from such huge area there would be a lot to talk about in terms of like well what's happening generally in in the broader world instead of just within our own group um and that, that seems to be a lot of what what happened there also there would be there would be grievances that that, that happened over time and they used the the gathering as a way of, of sorting some of this so that everybody left on a on a good note and that was often done with tournaments which are sort of like i suppose you'd call them like ritualized battles but rarely did anyone get get killed in them They're, or that happened sometimes but not not usually that was mainly a lot of venting and carrying on and um a show of force where you where one side a bit like a football match where one side will try to drive the other off the field and if they drove the other off the field then then they won you know uh and that was where you use your you know your weaponry and so on and the other the idea was to sort of not be, uh, you know, you'd have to sort of stand your ground and, and deflect whatever spears are coming your way or, or, or to, sort of without jumping out of the way. Um, so there was, there was a lot of artistry in, in, in this and it would have been, from what I've read, it must have been fantastic to watch. People came to just watch these, these things, but that's how a lot of the differences were sorted. 
Yeah, it's an interesting part of your paper um, that Aboriginal people had told white people or told each other of these stories of great battles, you know, that they had fought. But then when they went and watched these fights firsthand, they were a sort of like theatre. Yeah, that was the point I made because, you see, you, you read a lot of accounts, they say, oh, you know, uh, such such a, uh, a, a tribe, they annihilated the other tribe. But actually... Uh, what they meant is, is just like we, we say in a footy match, you know, we, you know, we slaughtered them, you know, but that doesn't mean anyone was dead on the field. Um, and, yeah, that's the interesting thing because a lot of whites heard that and thought, oh, my goodness, you know, they've wiped out an entire nation. But then when they attended them, they, they could see what was really going on, which was more just the uh, the fact that they, that they won the match sort of thing. Um, you know, having said that, there were accounts, I mean, it depended on how how furious a, a grievance you had. I mean, there were... I'm not going to make it light and say that, that ne they never had any ongoing feuds, but it's just... Um, uh, generally, it wasn't like that. Yeah, on that political theme as well, in the stories of the frontier wars that happened in this part of the country, the Bunya Gathering is also a significant place there. Uh, for instance, um, in the story of the Kilcoy Massacre... Yeah, I've written a bit about that, and so has uh, Libby Connors uh, in you know, Warrior, the, the book on um, Dunderley. Uh, and in fact, it, what, what I found exciting was I actually found an account from um, Olga Miller, who was a, uh, a, um, a bachelor elder, and she was recalling how her, uh, I think it was her grandfather, told the story about, about how he, as a boy, had gone with his grandfather to actually attend one of these... Uh, meetings that they had to, to decide, well, what do we do about the white people? Um, you, you've got to remember that Aboriginal groups, they're always part of a larger group. There's, there's, uh, uh, there's a Kimberley elder, she explained this to me once. She said, look, Ray, it's not like um, little nations. They're actually part of a gigantic net. And um, so you'd have your local identity, but then you'd be part of something bigger and then they'd be part of some alliance with other groups and so on. It went, you know. And so this, this would be useful when there's a, an invasion that's affecting everybody because then you might uh, put your uh, differences aside and then, and then start to do things together, and we have occasions of that. The, all, something like 14 of the main uh, groups, if you want, you know, language groups, some people call it, or tribes of the whole, which would be sort of like from central Queensland all the way down to north New South Wales. They all declared war on... On the on the whites, following the Kilcoy massacre, once they saw the um, the the massacre was reenacted for them, and, and everybody got got really annoyed and said, "Well, you know, that's it. We're we're acting against this." So you you can imagine a sort of coordinated activity across that huge area, um, uh, and and there's repeated accounts in the newspapers of the time of of the Bunya Mountains being used as this sort of place where people would meet up and uh, discuss what to do, and then and then go out and do it. So that would have been really important because there's, there's, you need to actually meet face-to-face -face for all this. I mean, that they did also relay messages by message stick and so on. And, you know, so things could be still be coordinated from afar, but a lot of it was the face-to-face -face meetings. And that's also why you find a lot of accounts of the native police being uh, instructed to break up big gatherings like that, particularly in the Banya Mountains. They did a lot of that. They did a lot of breaking up big gatherings because they knew that that was used to... Uh, hatch plots against whites. So on a bit of a lighter note, the bunny gatherings also had sports and games and also the corroborees, which were sort of like concerts. 
Mm. Yeah. The interesting, um, I'll, I'll do the, I'll, tell you, I'll talk about the concert thing first and then the other sport thing. We have accounts that they would often, you know, people would, would, would always bring a new dance. Each, so each time they came again to the Bunyam Bunny Mountains, they'd have a new dance, a new song. And it was very much like the, the Stedford in the sense that you tried to have the most popular one. And uh, if that was sort of the hit, then that would actually go around the whole group and then they'd bring it back to their homeland. And um, there's a number of early uh, anthropologists who record some of these songs being uh, sung in, in very distant lands and, and nobody actually knew what the songs meant because they were not in their own language, but they knew the song off by heart. So the, these things would travel like a, like a hit, you know, like, a, like a modern... Uh, um, you know, a uh, song um, back to these these places. In terms of the the sports, there's a lot of there were a lot of different things mentioned. There were like wrestling matches. There was um, something like um, I suppose you'd call it competitive boomerang throwing, where they do uh, concentric circles with a pole in the middle, and you try to get your boomerang closest to the middle pole. So uh, they had other running and uh, tree climbing um, contests. Um, there was there was something like a bit like bowls where they used uh, cobbles from cobble uh, stones like little boulders and they, they'd a bit like lawn bowls so there was a lot of things so you can imagine it would have been a very entertaining time to be up there and of course a bit of romance as well there were uh, sort of marriage and courtship rituals that happened at the gathering yeah that's the interesting thing I found one account which I found very amusing and it basically talks about how uh, well you know people wouldn't be married on the mountains themselves and I've, many of the elders have told me that it didn't you might have things arranged but you have to get married down the mountain um i should explain that like the mountains themselves were fairly sacred so um often people didn't spend a lot of time there they they would go up there through the day and they tend to camp below uh not always so some say that they were camped up there but generally you just everything that's sacrosanct you keep sort of clean if you like and so the, there'd be ceremonial grounds and um camps they were sort of below it, it, it seemed from what i could work at there were the camps and then beyond them a bit a little bit further out there were the ceremonial grounds well so there, there's this one there's this one account i found which was really uh interesting that said that when people get would get married the the bride and groom would be sent each up uh, uh, they'd have to climb a bunya tree by themselves the the groom would cry out to the to the bride you know, you know why he wanted her you know what he thought was great about her and she'd uh rebuff him and just um yeah, ridicule him, and they'd, they'd have this on, on, ongoing sort of um, uh, basically argument, and people would be would be supporting them from down below. They'd, they'd cry out, you know, you know, support and so on, and they'd work out from their interchange if they were suitable for each other, so that if they kind of could um, <laughs> argue well, and, you know, and, and, and cop all the flack, then they'd come down and they'd be married. So a, a very interesting use of bunya trees um, <laughs> to think of that. I find all the accounts of Aboriginal people climbing the trees quite interesting because I love bunion nuts, you know, but I pick them up off the ground. <laughs> I'm not climbing up that spiky thing, but it seems like they did all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's the interesting thing. And, um, well, they, they had like a hoop sort of uh, that they put around their body and around the tree. There were different ways. I mean, they're, they're, there's some accounts say that there were like steps cut in but a lot of the accounts I've read said that no one would ever dare touch a bunya tree or that sometimes it was a group that came from somewhere else and then they'd actually get in trouble for cutting the tree like that. So we're not quite sure what, what, what went on there. Um, you know, the other thing that's interesting too, and this is something I just found recently, 
is that a lot of the trees were they'd remove the lower branches of in order to uh, make the nuts uh, you know have more nuts and so on so there was a sort of like a farming of the of the trees um which you, you think that that would be actually quite a bit of effort to to go around all those trees and do that but uh, apparently that was done well, thanks very much, Ray. And I've got to say, you've gone to a lot of effort to compile this history. And so I wonder if you can tell us, why do you think it's important to record this? Um, well, obviously, it's, you know, in terms of things that are distinctly Australian, we really don't have much to go on in terms of our colonial history. That's It's a, it's a very thin layer, uh, whereas there's a lot of fascinating, rich material from Indigenous um, societies and, and, and you've got to think about it this wasn't only just for indigenous societies because a, a lot of the colonial societies were heavily involved in this, they were often participants in the Bunya gatherings, they were often uh, assisted them it was part of just what you did when you were up there I really think it's it's important in terms of like our identity, um, what's meaningful, it's also just a bit of an example it's, it's something like a, a real Australian Christmas in a way the, the way the event was, uh, an example of how different peoples can get on, like all the different groups that went there. Um, and I still, you know, if, even if today, if I go up to the Blackall Ranges or up to the Bunya Mountains, I, I, it does feel intoxicating in a way. I think from all those thousands and thousands of people going up there over thousands of years, you can still feel the joy. So these are really special a- areas, and uh, I think it's something almost like the something deeply spiritual that, that, that white Australians as much as well certainly obviously it's already ingrained for all the groups I talk with but you know it's something that we can get come away with that's, that's a bit deeper than than the usual um, daily run of things. Okay thanks very much Ray. Thank you. That is historian Ray Kirkover. He does a great job recording a lot of Aboriginal history and um, yes talking about bunya nuts there, bunya gatherings, and I really do agree with him that the at this time of year, trying to find the cones, uh, cracking them open together with people and cooking them up and then sharing them with people, the joy of this uh, food that's native to this area, um, that all of this is a really wonderful cultural thing and a way of being in tune with the traditions of this place going back thousands and thousands of years um, and as Ray said there, the Bunya gatherings would have been quite an event to be a part of. Um, so that's about it for the Paradigm Shift for this week. I'm actually going to go and eat some Bunya nuts now. Um, I've pre-prepared some already um, for lunch. Um, but uh, I will leave you with one last one. I hope you can go and find some of your own. Wherever you can find uh, the bunny trees, and they do stand out, they're quite distinctive-looking trees, it's worth looking underneath. The cones drop around this time of year in this part of the country and up at the Bunny Mountains a bit later, and I'll see you next week.